Hello everyone, I'm Alan McLeod, Senior Staff Writer and Podcast Producer, and this week I'm the host of the Mintcast Podcast. Um, this show is made possible by supporters like you as we face shadow banning on many platforms and the crackdown on independent anti-war watchdog journalism intensifies. We ask you to support us by becoming a member on our Patreon page, which will be in the link down below. Uh, the Mintcast podcast is also available on all your favorite podcast platforms. And if you're not in an economic position to support us, you can still support us by uh, sharing the stream or the audio or the video or giving us a like or a five star rating. Now, <clears throat> today we're going to zoom out and really look at the big picture of how the United States and the world itself works. And to do that, today we are joined by a brilliant academic and a historian, Aaron Good. Aaron is the co-author of the book, American Exception, Empire and the Deep State. He's also the host of the American Exception podcast, which I was recently on. So check that out as well. Welcome to the show, Aaron. Hey, thanks for having me. Great to talk to you again. So uh, I was ripping through your book, American Exception, Empire and the Deep State recently, and you sketched out how regardless of who's voted into office, real power really isn't challenged, how, you know, Team Red and Team Blue are basically on the same side on most issues, and therefore US policy remains the same. Uh, could you explain how this really works in practice? You call it a tripartite state in the book, right? Right, I do. And that that formulation is um, something I could explain. Maybe it would be best to start with what's happened to the U.S., you know, in the, what happened to the U.S. in the 20th century and then how it led to other 20th century developments and then get into the, the tripartite state. So I'll, I'll try to make this flow sort of logically if I can. Okay. Um, the, the U.S. as, you know, the, the first modern democracy, I guess you could say, uh, it was at a time exceptional in, in, in a qualified sense and that of course you have genocide and slavery and other and, and other exploitative and horrific practices but you had the the bill of rights and uh which enshrined certain human rights protections really in a in a constitution and that was kind of exceptional that was exceptional at the time and this was a you know i think a move forward in in the history of human progress and a, a good thing and I, i'm saying this as someone who's first and foremost a critic of us imperialism this was this was something interesting about the U.S. political system that it was it had some de democratic elements. I would never say full on a democracy or whatever, but it had uh, a, a demo, uh, it had a democracy nestled in with other forms of top down control that rigged the game in different ways. But you fast you fast forward to the end of the 1800s, and the U.S. is uh, has gone from sea to shining sea and they, uh, this process of imperialism in the U.S. and Western expansion is very much uh, land-based and, and continental and domestic. And because it doesn't go about colonizing other countries in the same way, it, it, it packages itself as being anti-imperialist until the Spanish-American War, the end of the 20th century, or at the end of the 19th century, and the U.S. actually takes over the remnants of Spain's tottering empire. Uh, in Cuba and the Philippines, and there was a there was pushback against Americans who w formed this like many formed the anti-imperialist league, or they supported this league, and there were some industrialists even who were against this. But underlying this question of whether the U.S. should keep expanding was when the frontier is closed at the end of the 1800s, 
there are economic problems because the frontier served as a kind of outlet for excess labor and excess capital and excess energies within the, the, the body politic. And if things in industrialized or developed parts of the East were too bad, people could always light out to the West and just become a farmer or something like that. But eventually that's not the case. And there's economic problems that result of this from this. And the question is, are they going to develop a, a, an economy where they try to uh, improve consumption and production for domestic purposes and raise living standards? Or do they want to go abroad in search of other markets and raw materials? The imperialists went out and the U.S. gradually becomes more imperialistic. Uh, they, they go into World War I largely to protect creditors. They fight banana republic wars, you know, uh, in the early 20th century. Um, the settlement at the end of World War I is kind of is ridiculous. And it's basically Germany has to pay huge reparations to pay the allies who have to pay the U.S. And so the U.S. loans money to Germany. And, and it's a ridiculous system. And it eventually leads to the Great Depression. And out of that, fascism emerges in Italy and Germany, supported by U.S. capitalists. And in the U.S., you have a reformist regime uh, and they put down a fascist coup, basically, or they, they're able to. There were elements who wanted to stage a coup against Roosevelt and they supported fascism elsewhere. Uh, but Roosevelt wins out and, and the New Deal is more or less this reformist progressive uh, reforms to capitalism, but it saves capitalism and, and has some social democratic institutions. But what happens during this time period is people who are very powerful, the Wall Street's Council on Foreign Relations, the corporate heart of America, uh, they are given the task of planning America's entry into World War II. And they take advantage of that to plot out a whole huge empire uh, that they're, that they're going to go for. They're going to basically enter the war and they're going to win it and they're going to establish dominion over global capitalism uh, and they're going to essentially take control of Western imperialism. It's not stated that way, but that's that ends up being the consensus of people at the top of the U.S. And that consensus of the U.S. as the global hegemon of capitalism worldwide is the story of our time. It's uh, America ceases to be a normal country in any sense in that way. And it becomes something totally unique in world history uh, because Capitalism was, you know, a revolutionary system and the, the world wars were basically in, intra fight, intra rival, intra capitalist rivalries, right? Between Western em empires uh, to decide who was the top dog. Well, the dust settles and America is the top dog. And at that point, they go for this new regime that they're going to manage in an imperial fashion, but they're not going to call it that. They're going to call it free enterprise and the free world or whatever. And that's that's the Cold War. So there's a consensus there, and it's maintained in both parties. Both parties support the Cold War. The the app the people that argued against, you know, global dominion were like the Vice President Henry Wallace, and he argued for a century of the common man instead of the American century, uh, the, the, which was Henry Luce's idea, Time Life magazine. And Henry Wallace gets swept aside, and you get empire and uh, all of these institutions that are supposed to manage the empire, like the creation of the CIA in 1947. Uh, and this is a new thing for the American experience to have this kind of secret police with state power to do covert operations and dirty tricks and so on. But because the Cold War is depicted as so dangerous, that it justifies this. And this securitized version of like politics where you must protect, you must pursue the Cold War because you have to protect us against this terrible communist threat and we're justified to break all the rules against this communist threat. This 
changes the quality or the character of Amer- the American regime. It becomes a lawless kind of regime, but not one that admits that. So I've kind of come to the conclusion that the reason that after World War II, they rescue all those fascists from the defeated countries is because they needed them to, and other people have made this, you know, I'm not the first person to say this, Chris Simpson and Peter Dale Scott wrote about this many decades ago. But the reason that they do this is because they want what fa- the, the services of fascists are useful because fascism is the anti-communist, communist international. That was the real name of the Axis Pact. And they needed these guys to kill people and, you know, murder people, murder leftists to make sure that you got the political order that you wanted. And so the U.S. basically takes over management of capitalism and basically also takes over management of fascism without admitting it. It's not that the fascist forces are defeated. They're just repurposed. And they're this underlying part of the regime in the U.S. and in NATO countries, too. And on certain occasions, they surface in ways that show us that there is a a governing power, uh, a, a reigning sovereign power that limits what democracy can actually do in the United States. The most obvious and egregious case of this kind of intervention in politics and democratic politics is the Kennedy assassination, a John Kennedy assassination. But five years after that, when John Kennedy's brother wanted to resume, you know, winding down the Cold War and investigating JFK's assassination, they assassinated him too. Uh, There was this uh, there was a stolen election in 1968 where Nixon sabotaged peace talks. There's a stolen election in 1980, you could argue, with uh, Jimmy Carter having uh, Reagan people sabotage the uh, negotiations with Iran over the hostages. Uh, there are these other incidents where we see this sort of darker hand intervene and it limits politics and, and shifts it back to this imperialist consensus. And that's really where you get this dynamic where nothing changes no matter what party you get. And to the extent that there were progressive elements in the ruling establishment, by the time uh, that Watergate has unfolded and Reagan gets elected uh, and, and this new dollar regime is put in around the world where the U.S. is untethered to gold at this point in terms of its expenditures, then you really have a new regime and every president since is Reagan. And that's what we get. Reagan, 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 Reagan. And that's where we are today in 2023 with a new Reagan who may be even more senile than the original Reagan, which is quite an accomplishment. And yet the machine rolls on. Yeah, I want to pick up on what you just said about the management of fascism there. I mean, are you talking a little bit about like uh, Operation Gladio, for instance, um, which was this huge program by uh, Western powers to basically pull together all the fascist elements in Europe and keep them united in a sort of secret army to make sure that Democracy, which you know some people would call communism or socialism, but ultimately it meant the will of the people to control their own lives would not actually be threatened to break out across Europe. I mean, of course, at the end of World War II, most of these countries were smashed, and most of the genuine resistance to fascism. You were talking about fascism being anti-communist. Well, communist is sort of inherently anti-fascist, and in Italy, the communists actually pretty much liberated most of the north of the country. In Yugoslavia, they were almost entirely um, successful in driving the fascists out. The communists were the main force within uh, French politics for a long time as well. And even in countries like Great Britain, which are sort of islands of uh, stability, there was this huge labor movement, and this huge sort of anti-fascist surge, this leftist surge. And to the United States, it seemed like 
pretty clear that the entire continent, if given the opportunity, would eventually just go red. And, you know, we even know for sure that the, the United States organized this huge interference in the Italian elections right after World War II, whereby they had this enormous, you know, letter writing campaign from Italian Americans uh, sending um, their cousins and their friends over in the motherland these messages warning that the United States would never uh, would never stand for this kind of thing, even importing mafia figures from places like New Jersey and New York and Chicago back into uh, into Italy to try to disrupt the communists and try to push up these sorts of Christian right-wing Democrats, or so, so they call themselves, but basically conservative forces, even working with uh, the church as well there, which is still very powerful. And it went all the way up to like, you know, assassinating politicians in Italy. And, you know, it's called Operation Gladio because that's the word for the gladiator sword. But ultimately, this was going on all over Europe in many places. It's just that we actually have the documents for the Italian side. And much of this was going on because, uh, you know, at the behest of the CIA, who were really had this very controlling hand in European politics. I mean, we like to think of the CIA, well, I don't know if we like to, but most people uh, who are politically engaged know about CIA coup operations in places like Guatemala to get rid of Jacobo Arbenz in the 1950s or in the 1970s, making the economy scream in Chile and leading to the ouster of um, Salvador Allende and his uh, replacement with the fascist dictator uh, General Pinochet, or you know even the CIA getting involved in African politics or Asian politics. But a lot of the time, we don't really think about how the CIA is actually like you know deep into the center of European politics as well. Um, I know the CIA comes up a lot in your work, and as a historian of U.S. empire, I don't know. I think it's kind of impossible to talk about the subject of empire without really talking about the CIA. So could you like just sketch out where it actually came from? Because a lot of people don't know that, and also what its function is in today's society. Well, the CIA takes on functions that had been performed in other ways before the existence of the CIA. But in 1947, they're writing this National Security Act, and it is determined by people like Alan Dulles and Ferdinand Eberstadt and um, James Forrestal, who are all connected to Wall Street law firms, that there needs to be this central intelligence agency. In fact, Alan Dulles, the notorious CIA director, he was actually the vice president of the CFR when they wrote the War and Peace Studies Project. And then later he was the president, um, I believe after World War II, for a number of years, he was actually the president of the Council on Foreign Relations, which is Wall Street's big think tank. They're still around today. And he wrote two, he wrote a volume of the War and Peace Studies Project planning World War II plans for the U.S. Um, that are still classified. And people speculate they were on sovereignty and security. Uh, and, and people speculate that this may have been where he was actually calling for the need to create something like the CIA because it seems logical based on what actually did happen. But they argued for this agency to be created. Uh, Wall Street bankers, like as I said, or lawyers like Alan Dulles was at Sullivan Cromwell representing the biggest corporations, uh, transnational corporations in the world. And Dylan Reed was the home of the other, two other key figures there, Ferdinand Eberstadt and uh, James Forrestal. And this is old money, old Wall Street money. And the way that they established the CIA is 
uh, ostensibly to deal with the problem of intelligence for the president, that the president was getting the, you know, Navy intelligence would say this, and the State Department says this, and the Army says this, and it's too, the Energy Department says this, it's too confusing. So they wanted to centralize it. So they create a central intelligence agency. They give it a boring name, um, just like they always do for the, some of the worst things they give boring names to. And uh, in the act, the legislation, there's a passage written by Clark Clifford, who comes up again and again in Cold War history, uh, where he says, the CIA, uh, it, it lists all the duties, and most of them are like intelligence gathering and analysis. But then there's one part where they say, the CIA will... From time we'll do from time to time things assigned to it by the National Security Council to uh, for, protect the United States national security. Well, that's very vague, and uh, somebody should have said, "Hey, wait, that is pretty vague. Can you specify this?" But what that came to be interpreted as uh, is as a mandate or authorization to do all sorts of covert action and dirty tricks, and basically to act as a lawless, you know, secret police for uh, the the U.S the U.S. ostensibly, in practice, because they are so connected to Wall Street forces, they act like Wall Street's secret police. So that's a key part of the, the U.S. empire is you know, understanding that it's really Wall Street that's the beneficiary of this. The billionaires and, and multimillionaires that are created, this is the a result of deliberate action from, act, from of officials in the uh, you know, in the in the state, and then outside the state, with lots with lots of wealth, with the ability to influence the state. And so, if you, for an example, look at the there's a coup in in Honduras in like 1913 or so. It's, it's led by this guy named Sam Zamuri, who's a banana magnate. And there wasn't any CIA at the time in 1913, but Sam Zamuri is an enterprising guy, so he goes and he gets a mafiosi uh, named Machine Gun Maloney, I think. And then a, a mercenary named maybe Lee Christmas or something like that. And then they bribe a local Honduran official and they go down, they take a boat from New Orleans and they go to Honduras and they bribe some enough people to overthrow the government because the, the government in Honduras wanted to tax Sam Zamuri's banana plantations too much. Okay. This guy goes on to like be a, a big figure in United Fruit, which has m many connections to the U.S. establishment. Fast forward to 1954. And Sam Zamuri again, and other people around United Fruit are are lobbying the government to deal with the banana company's problems. This time in Guatemala, in 1954, they overthrow Jacobo Arbenz who, because he wanted to um, nationalize and redistribute to landless peasants land that was owned by United Fruit and was uncultivated. So they stage a CIA a coup, overthrow. Uh, our bins, and they put in a brutal, a series of brutal regimes that kill, you know, 200,000 Mayans uh, over the decades. But what's notable about it is it's very, it's very similar. It's, it's almost exactly the same as what they were doing in a way. I mean, with better technology and a bigger budget between Sam Zamuri's 1913 Honduras coup, and then this CIA overthrow. So it's, and the CIA, of course, deals with mobsters as well, just like Sam Zamuri did. And Zamuri himself is a guy who's like, he's the, the bridge from the coup, the pre-CIA coup to the 1954 Cold War coup that's supposedly to fight communism. But if it's the same policy as before, the same out, out, outcome, how can you say that it's communism in the Cold War? And then add to that, in 2009, Hillary Clinton had, uh, was uh, somebody who, 
abetted a coup in Honduras as well, which is, of course, after the Cold War. And again, it's corporate America that was aggrieved by this Honduran president named Azalea, and they overthrow him. So this is this is uh, the CIA's function is to do these kinds of things for the uh, betterment of uh, U.S. hegemony and U.S. imperialism. And they break the laws all the time to do this. And there are no consequences for this. And, and this is a violation of not just U.S. laws, which they have done. They're not supposed to even operate in the U.S., but they do over and over again without consequence. But the U.S. is a signatory to the U.N. Charter, which outlaws aggression against countries uh, or even the threat of aggression. And the Supremacy Clause of the Constitution says that that is the, since it's a ratified treaty, it's the supreme law of the land. But nobody can do anything about this. The judge, the judiciary has abdicated any responsibility. The, the legislative branch doesn't do anything about it. We've just accepted a kind of imperial lawlessness since the end of World War II. And the CIA, but it's often covert. And that's where the CIA comes in. The CIA does things with plausible deniability. So if they overthrow a government, they can say, we didn't, no, we didn't do that. It was uh, some people rose up in the streets. This is what they said in Iran in 53 and Guatemala in 1954. It's a victory for democracy or Maidan in 2014. Oh, it's democracy. Like they still say this and there's still people who dupes or, you know, other duplicitous people who will say, no, it's, it's a people's uprising. It's, but how many times do they have to do it before the, the, the reflex is to say it's the CIA until proven otherwise, you know, but <laughs> here we are. Yeah, I mean, when you were talking about the CIA being this, like, uh, what did you call it, Wall Street secret police, I just remember uh, that famous speech from Major General Smedley Butler. Do you remember when he was saying, you know, I helped Haiti and Cuba become a decent place for the National City Bank boys to make their revenues, and I helped in the pillaging of uh, half a dozen Central American republics for the benefit of Wall Street? And he goes on to just say that uh, war itself is a racket whereby the United States is always intervening. That's, I, I hate the word intervene, actually, attacking yeah. other countries um, for the benefit of huge industrialists and huge powerful interests. It's not in the interest generally of American people to go to war constantly. It's not in the interest of ordinary people to have to pay either in blood or in dollars for uh, being at war for 227 out of the 247 years the country has been independent or anything. So. Yeah, it just seems to go on and on. And the CIA seems to be at the center of all of this historically. Most of my work that I've done looking at the CIA tends to really look at what it's doing right now in terms of trying to infiltrate social media and big tech companies. So like, for example, if you look at the Facebook's uh, regulatory board, which ultimately decides what content is allowed and what content isn't, in fact, if you go to facebook.com and look at who they choose as their public face of, um, of uh, consumer safety and uh, you know content regulation, his name is Aaron. And you can watch a nice little video of him in a beautiful purple jumper. And he's sitting in a well-lit room and he's talking about how you know, he really is kept up at night all the time because you've got to make these tough decisions between content moderation and you know, letting free speech reign, and it really, you know, these are questions that really vex him. And it's very important for him and Facebook to be totally honest and transparent about all this. But at the same time, they're not being 
completely honest and transparent about who Aaron is, because Aaron Berman, who what is his name, was until 2019 one of the highest ranking members of the CIA. And he was actually so high up that he was writing the president's daily briefings for President Obama and President Trump. I'm sure Obama read them, probably Trump had them read out to him. But that's just, you know, the way it is. And it goes on and on with like companies like Google and Twitter just having so many national security state agents all now, you know, uh, being parachuted into the, some of the highest levels of uh, the companies and not in things like marketing or customer service, but in really politically sensitive fields such as content moderation, safety, uh, things like that, which actually affect what billions of people see every day and classically what they don't see, right? But um, I also want to pick up on one other thing. You, you talked about Ukraine. I mean, from the from the mainstream press, I mean, we do get the the sort of uh, perception that this war came out of almost nowhere. And of course, Russia did uh, invade Ukraine in February 2022. I think there's no uh, question about that, of course. But if you start winding the timeline back a little bit, the sort of uh, the amount of blame that each side should get starts to become slightly murkier. Could you kind of explain what either the CIA or the United States more generally was doing in uh, Eastern Europe uh, before the war started? Well, they were very active in, I mean, the, the collapse of the Soviet Union was a, a deliberate and undertaken by people in the U.S. In the old days of the Cold War, there there were people that Eisenhower thought were kind of dangerous fanatics who were in favor of what was called rollback rather than just containment. So containment was the anti-communist policy, but the idea was to contain communism and not to allow it to expand. The rollback people thought we needed to get in there and try to roll back communism so we should support these different groups in places like Hungary and so on. And then they never really had the upper hand policy-wise. Uh, in 1954, I believe it was, they backed these separatists in Hungary and they were able to provoke uh, an uprising that eventually the Soviet Union had to put down. Uh, and this killed people in Hungary. And some of the people in the CIA who were really for rollback and had supported this were despondent because we basically left them there to, to be sla slaughtered or, or, you know, crushed by uh, Soviets and Soviet-backed uh, forces there. But, but for the American side, that's kind of a PR victory. I mean, that's where the term tanky comes from because they sent tanks. And, like, nobody even knows this. It's just a dumb propaganda term that imperialists use to try to, you know, insult people who are, are anti-imperialist. But it actually comes from this bungled CIA operation or that maybe it wasn't bungled. Like maybe that's the whole point is you send in the tanks and then you can say, look at the tankies or whatever, you know, I mean, because you've threatened a, a country with uh, geopolitically. And that's the situation that Russia, the Soviet Union was in in the Cold War. It was a very defensive situation. They had much less capital at their disposal. Most a lot of their industry had are they had to create their own huge war production industry. And a lot of those, a lot of brain drain in Eastern Europe and so on. And life behind the Iron Curtain was kind of hard, but they, uh, it was the West wanted it to be that way. The West didn't want the, the, there to be trade between Europe and uh, the, the, the Soviet bloc. And that was why they ginned up the Cold War the way that they did. When they finally succeed in rolling communism back in the, in the early 90s, 
you know, they, they had done a number of things. They had, they supported Afghan Mujahideen, you know, jihad, uh, crazies, right? These jihadists that they put in, which were not really an organic thing in the, the Muslim world, the way that they appeared. I mean, there were fundamentalist Muslims in different places, but this creation of a militant weaponized, uh, you know, current in, in Islam, in Islam, it, it dates to, a you know, British chicanery and the, with the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. And then the U.S. kind of adopts that and they really ramp it up in the 70s. So you have this Afghanistan problem. You have these loans that are made to Eastern Bloc countries, uh, which put them into sort of debt traps. You have the U.S. and CIA uh, collaborating to collapse oil prices right when Gorbachev needed oil revenues to fund these reforms. And the result is the collapse of the Soviet Union. I mean, there's much more to that story, but there were and, and they supported solidarity in Poland and all these other movements in like Czechoslovakia and everywhere else. And the whole idea was to bring down the Soviet Union because they wanted to expand really the, the boundaries of U.S. of Western imperialism. And so NATO expansion was a big part of that. They, they promised Gorbachev that NATO would move not one inch to the east as a condition for allowing the reunification of Germany. And they break that promise. And in Central Asia, they also go right into the Soviet heartland using those jihadis again, starting with Azerbaijan in right in 1991. And in other places like Bosnia, Uzbekistan, they use these forces to really attack the periphery of the former Soviet Union. So this and, the, and Ukraine is especially sensitive to Russia because it's it, it really a lot of Ukraine. There's, there's no logical reason why it is not part of Russia. It's like, like they're culturally Russian, not, you know, really not they're cl much closer to Russia than they are to the western part of Ukraine. They were a, a historically a part of Russia. Um, they are geopolitically indispensable for Russia because it's their access to uh, the only warm water port, really, uh, in Crimea. And so it was known that this was a huge red line for Russia if the if the U.S. was to attempt to like bring Ukraine over to NATO. And uh, even CIA director now, uh, Burns, he was an ambassador at the time back in 2008. A lot of people have seen that cable, diplomatic cable from him where he says, Nyet means Nyet. And he just talks about how everybody in Russia sees NATO expansion into Ukraine as a, as a totally unacceptable red line, could lead to a civil war, and then Russia would have to decide whether to intervene or not, and they really don't want to do that. Eventually, the U.S. decides, I think, I think in part because of Syria, what happens in Syria, the fact that Russia is able to stop Syria's, uh, the re U.S. regime change in Syria. Uh, you know, they'd sent in all those Islamists and so on in Syria to try to overthrow Assad. And using the Arab Spring protests and stuff as a pretext. And the U.S. backs that billions and billions of dollars, sort of a, a new Mujahideen like the Afghanistan, except maybe an, an even bigger project. And that fails in, in large part because Russia comes to the aid of the Syrians because they don't want to see this. They don't want jihadis sent into their own territory. They don't want to lose a, a port they have access to in Syria. And a number of reasons, they just support an ally there that the U.S. was trying to destroy. And I think that that had something to do with why they went forward so recklessly with Maidan in 2014. But there's huge amounts of uh, support for these U.S.-friendly elements of Ukrainian uh, society, and probably a lot of the Ukrainian oligarchs too, who have you know vast sums that are aligned to the West. They were probably putting money in uh, huge amounts of money into that as well. So you have a lot of money there to, to manipulate politics. They can't win; an, they don't win an election, but. They're able to stage the Maidan coup 
and overturn an election uh, because the leader was going to uh, strike us some deals that were friendly, not friendly, but more like cooperative and have a modus vivendi with Russia. And the U.S. didn't want that. Uh, and they wanted them to take an IMF plan and to be aligned with Europe. So they they eventually, you know, use these Maidan protests and to affect a coup complete with one of the CIA's favorite, you know, chestnuts, which is having snipers shoot protesters so that you can say to create chaos. And then you can say, oh, the regime's goons are cracking down and this thuggery is unacceptable. And, you know, it's, it can be used to affect the final stages of a coup. And that's what happened. So they put in a puppet there. And this is, uh, you know, th- th- there was another attempt in like, I think it was 2004, uh, the, the Orange Revolution or whatever, all these different color revolutions or CIA productions uh, backed with CIA cutouts like George Soros. Okay. Problem with George Soros isn't that he's part of a you know, Jewish conspiracy. The, part, the problem with George Soros is that he's often a conspirator for Western imperialism uh, and for capitalism. Okay. And Soros and other people back these kind of operations. Uh, you know, Pierre Omidyar was was a guy uh, who runs the Intercept. You know, he's That's like, right. I guess yeah. I don't even know if you'd call him a competitor of, of Mint Press because they're so they're sort of your opposite or something. Because uh, they're like an intelligence outlet that poses as uh, or an intelligence connected entity through Omidyar. It, it seems pretty obvious, but they always uh, spin things in a vaguely you know imperial friendly way. Uh, but all these ca- all these forces are brought to bear uh, to affect this coup in Ukraine and turn it into a bastion, a NATO bastion on Russia's border, uh, a horrendous uh, threat from the perspective of the Russians. I mean, recall what Q- the U.S. did in Cuba with the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, and that was when the U.S. had probably its most anti-imperialist president, uh, you know, in the modern, you know, in, in, in the last, since the U.S. became a global empire, if that makes any sense, which doesn't make any sense, which is how, you know, you end up with this weird assassination outcome. Uh, for the Kennedy presidency. But the point is that this imperial, like in a place like Russia or the US that has nuclear weapons and is a nuclear power is to be placed under threat from nuclear missiles right on your doorstep is never going to be acceptable uh, to them. And we can talk about Russia violating international law by invading uh, Ukraine, which it did. The problem is that international, the U.S. violated international law by overthrowing Ukraine's government and turning it into a, a, a NATO fortress. So, you know, I know they didn't formally join NATO, but they're a de facto NATO member. I mean, all those weapons and so on, what, you know, it, it's the only thing is that they can't invoke, you know, an article of mutual defense or something. But this is quite a thing. The U.S. would never have tolerated this were it to happen in Mexico. And we already know this because Cuba was a similar situation, like. The argument that they make now of like they're a sovereign country with the the right by international law to ally with whoever they want. Well, we are we've already tested what the U.S. would do in that situation with Cuba, or you could say even with Grenada, and those were indigenous revolutions that put in governments that the U.S. didn't like. So it's uh if you're going to be realistically look at politics, this is you know you're, you're once you get into threatening nuclear you know annihilation or nuclear bullying uh, or, or nuclear coercion which is what a, a nato ukraine would be i i think it's kind of silly to be parsing international law here to expect people to abide by international law in the face of existential threats and that's the position that russia is in so it's not a ma- it's not even a matter of justifying this or that it's a it's a matter of knowing when questions of justice are relevant or when they are not and I think un- with existential threats, 
they, you know, you have to add that to, to your, to your thinking. And, uh, they, of course, they haven't wanted to do that with Ukraine. They've wanted to just depict it as Russian aggression and, and so on that they're, you know, protecting Ukrainian people from Russian aggression, but 400,000 or so Ukrainians are dead and they don't have any chance of winning. It's getting harder to make the argument that we're there to help Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, I interviewed uh, United Nations, uh, uh, high United Nations official on this uh, program a couple of weeks ago, Alfred Desaius, and I think I agree with him when he said, you know, when you look at uh, international law, it's absolutely clear that the Russians broke it by invading uh, Ukraine. That is the crime of aggression. There's only very specific ways in which a country is allowed to use its military against other countries. And those clearly didn't apply here. But at the same time is that we can, you know, we can condemn Putin as much as we want. And we can even, you know, bring charges against him in the international criminal court, as is what's going on. I don't think there's very much likelihood of that actually coming to bear, because generally the people that the ICC actually uh, prosecute tend to be powerless ex-leaders of some of the poorest countries in the world. And Vladimir Putin certainly isn't powerless. And not only that, uh, Desires was talking about how uh, even though, you know, there's, there's not defensible, it was still, the invasion was still completely provoked by NATO. And if we're going to be minimally honest about, you know, um, uh, prosecuting Putin, which in a perfect world might happen, but in a perfect world, we'd also be prosecuting people like Tony Blair and George Bush for their uh, crimes in Iraq and Afghanistan or Obama for drone bombing seven different countries simultaneously. So when we start talking about international law, it's always selectively applied and it tends to be pretty much always selectively applied by the victors and the powerful against uh, their foes rather than uniquely uh, one rule for everyone. Um, for the record, I'd say The Intercept has got some great journalists on there, even if they are, <laughs> even if uh, the funding structure of that thing is uh, kind of sketchy as it's, you know, billionaire funded. And uh, you mentioned George Soros before. I kind of, I kind of tend to shy away from talking about Soros because just if you look online, the amount of stuff uh, about him is just, there's just this cavalcade of absolute anti-Semitic nonsense from the far right talking about he's, you know, even Elon Musk gets involved in this, talking about how he's an enemy of humanity and he must be stopped, etc. And that really takes away from genuine critiques you can have of Soros, like you were saying there. Uh, another word that I usually don't use is deep state, precisely for the reason that it seems that the word is really being hijacked by all these Alex Jones lunatics who have kind of ruined the, the use of a, a really good uh, and useful word to try to describe something that you actually put your finger on throughout your entire you know, work. Uh, what do you think about words like deep state? Do you think uh, they've kind of been ruined by people like uh, the Trumpists? Or do you think actually, in a, in a certain way, they've kind of helped a lot of people start to be a bit more skeptical of the national security state? What do you think? I mean, Trump did not help things by bastardizing the word. Um, and his version of the deep state is not really coherent or, or sensible. And that follows, I guess, in the Alex Jones tradition. Um, it's the term comes from Turkey, where they had a where eventually it emerged that there was a network that would override democracy periodically staging coups and using false flag violence. They called it Darren Devlet. 
I believe is the translation, which is translates to deep state. And a European scholar named Ola Tanander wrote about the deep state, uh, an essay around 2008 or nine uh, called Approaching the Deep State of the West, I believe. And this is a brilliant essay, and Ola's become a, a friend of mine. And he was writing about how all over Europe there is this, you have democracy on the surface, but you have the ability to intervene and veto politics. And this, is, this traces back to Nazi legal theory, uh, in a sense, that it was the, not, the, the, the enabling act allowed, and the Fuhrer principle was that the leader is going to decide what the exception is to the rule of law, and he's going to take the actions necessary to protect the state. And that's the kind of logic of securitized politics, and that that is not democratic, which relies on openness and transparency and consensus, whereas this sort of dark securitized politics relies on secrecy and hierarchy and lawlessness. And this is something that led an, a, a German scholar named Ernest Frankel to write about the dual state. He wrote an essay called, I believe that there are a, a book, he, he defected or left the country, whatever, immigrated to the U.S., uh, Ernst Frankel, and he wrote this book, The Dual State, uh, A Study in Dictatorship, I think is the full title. And he says that there's a, the regular normative state is what he called it, your, your regular bureaucracy of the government. But then he said that there was this security state that emerged, this dual state that was the guardian, uh, supposedly, of the, of the state. He called it a prerogative state meaning that the leader has the prerogative to do whatever. It's not bound by laws. And that he used this to explain the Nazi state. Now, my argument in American Exception, the essay that I, the article that I wrote first in 2015, and then in the, I expand on it for my dissertation, and that's the book eventually, uh, American Exception, Empire and the Deep State, is that the U.S. experience, because it needs to be a, a democracy, it creates a national security state um, to ostensibly protect the state, sort of like, you know, I mean, the Nazis did that too, but I'm not saying the U.S. is Nazis, right? But because the U.S. can't have like a Fuhrer principle in effect because it's a democracy and, and so on, people believe in the rule of law and that's a big part of U.S. branding and the legitimacy of the U.S. government, it has to have a sort of submerged dictatorship. Uh, in a sense, the dictatorial parts of the state have to be denied. And that's where the deepness comes in, uh, that it's it's like a, all of those you could you could point to like entities or organizations at, at points in the American system that might be able to like exert top down control in some way, right, in a specific way to do dictatorial secret things and so on. That could be one way to describe the deep state. But in a bigger systemic sense, the deep state is all those institutions that allow for top-down governance in a nominal democracy. So all of these institutions that allow corporate power to always win, uh, these could be a part of the uh, of the deep state. We could say the the corporate control over the over the media system in the United States is functionally part of the deep state. It's part of our system of governance, and the but you know, the darkest conspiratorial parts are those elements that allow for just the straight up vetoing of democratic politics. So the assassinations of JFK, for example, is, you know, a deep state intervention. And we apply the same kind of logic to supposedly democratic Europe, like Aldo Moro in the 70s was trying to 
form a coalition government with socialists and communists because they had the numbers. And he was told by Henry Kissinger, if you keep doing this, you're going to end up dead. Some fringe elements are going to come and kill you, and, and that'll be the end of you. Aldo Moro persisted, and then he got kidnapped by these so-called Red Guards that were m- infiltrated by the CIA, by Gladio. And then they, he ends up found, uh, discovered dead in his, his car later. Uh, and it went down just like Henry Kissinger threatened him and told him, you're going to die if you keep doing this. Uh, it, this is part of the mechanism of, of control. So democracy you know, can be manipulated in different ways by these deep political forces, especially you know, corporate power, control of the media, control of the uh, political parties, etc., and then when it comes down to it, they could, if that doesn't get the result they want, if democratic forces are actually able to still overcome the dictates of the most powerful you know, oligarchs, then the deep states clandestine you know, paramilitary apparatus can come in and assassinate people or steal elections uh, outright. You know, like a lot, of, a lot of people have written about the 2004, 2000 and 2004 elections as being stolen uh, so that George, the Bush administration would, uh, you know, be installed. And um, we are in the West, we are unable to grapple with this. Uh, I, I've taken to also calling it parafascism because uh, this is from an old Peter Dell Scott essay. And he kind of abandoned the term and had something of a mental breakdown, actually, after he wrote this really you know, brilliant essay, a sprawling essay that should have been a book. And it's a little scatterbrained, but it's like really brilliant. But he's writing about how even with the church committee and the Watergate reforms, you still have this, these kind of fascist uh, elements existing overseas. And it seems like they're operating without even direction necessarily from, from Washington, but it's like this dark uh, source of, of top-down power. And, uh, you know, eventually Peter does embrace Ola Tanander's concept of the deep state. And I've built on that as, as well. So it, it really is a, it's a it's a kind of fascism, which is a loaded term in the U.S., but it, I think that the top-down rule under capitalism or just imperialist capitalist despotism, that's basically fascism. So it existed before the fascists in Italy. I mean, the Jim Crow regime had fascist elements. The genocide of the American Indians had, had elements of this. We call them proto-fascist. Uh, and then you had outright fascists in the World War II era, you know, in that period. But then what I would say emerged afterwards is something we could call parafascism, which is fascism that denies it's fascism, but, but it, it functions the same way that fascism did, which was to protect above all the hegemony of a capitalist property oligarchy over society. We're speaking with historian and academic extraordinaire Aaron Good. He's the author of American Exception, Empire and the Deep State. A uh, quick reminder to support us on Patreon or other platforms. There will be a link down below. We uh, unsurprisingly are not supported by billionaire backers. We are doing this with you. We can't do it without you. So uh, yeah, just uh, just a little plug for that and we'll keep on going. Aaron, um, in recent times, there have been quite a few signs that Washington's grip over the world has loosened. You were talking about Russia before. I mean, I feel like the failure to isolate Russia economically uh, quite surprised me in a lot of ways. The, the dollar being dropped as the world's reserve currency very quickly, 
the US pulling out of Afghanistan really ignominiously. Do you think these are signs that American power is waning? And could we even go further and say that the days of American exceptionalism might be numbered? Well, there's American exceptionalism with the sort of philosophy that America is really special and unique among nations and uh, is not beset by the corruption of other countries and empires. And then there's what I write about, which is American exceptionism, which is the installation of uh, or the creation of lawlessness. It's like a permanent state of emergency lawlessness that has prevailed since the end of World War II. And it's why the CIA is empowered to break all these laws all the time and so on and so forth. Uh, but is the so this is crumbling though this the the illusion of American exceptionalism, America's actual hegemony over global capitalism is crumbling because, I mean, if you you don't have to be an academic to sort of get the gist of it. it, it you have to, you could watch Star Wars, and you recall Darth Vader, uh, or you know was talking trash to uh, Princess Leia, and she says, well, I think it's to Darth Vader, but whoever it's to. She says, the more you the empire tightens its grip, the more star systems will slip out of its grasp, right? And like it is this is this is the dialectic, okay, in, in pop culture form. It is the dialectical forces that bring down empires were in, are inevitably going to bring down the US empire. And because you generate the empires generate the their own resistance, which will eventually be their downfall. Uh this is this has happened to every empire. The, what, what another aspect of America that is exceptional is the hubris of American imperialists in that they believe that these laws did not apply to them, these laws of history and, and civilization. So when in the 1990s, you had the Russian and Chinese governments starting to make statements about how there should be a multipolar world. And we've we're committed to creating a multipolar world. That really meant that they were created to they were committed to creating an international system in which the U.S. did not get to act like global dictator as the global sovereign, the policeman of the world order. And here we are, you know, almost 30 years after this, and we see that this is finally coming to pass. This is, uh, you know, Chinese persistence here. I mean, they have they study their history. They, they think in a longer term than the U.S. and uh, it, it, for what is to them a blink of the eye, the U.S. hegemony is is now crumbling, and they've been a, a big part of that. I, I think people like Rockefeller, Rockefeller as a family represents the U.S. oligarchy and these networks of power in the U.S. Uh, they were successful in bringing China into the capitalist economy, global economy. I believe that they thought at the time that if you did this, it would corrupt the Chinese. They wouldn't have said it this way. They would have said in their own minds, they would have rationalized it. It would have democratized them or commit them to the freedom or whatever. But they really believe that in practice, I think that creation of a capitalist class in China would corrupt the country because you get all that money. What can you do with it? You want to corrupt it for capitalism. I think they, they arrogantly thought that this would be like their way of handling and managing China. You could even use them as a source of cheap labor to crush labor unions in the U.S. and uh, have higher profit margins. But the Chinese were very, very patient and diligent, playing within the system that the U.S. created uh, and eventually acquired the, the technological and economic and industrial wherewithal to be a counterbalancing force in the global economy. Uh, to U.S. hegemony. And so this U.S. system 
which essentially says to every country out there in the world, do what we say or else. And, and then what does that entail? Well, it just means that our corporations and our economic interests are to be allowed to buy up whatever they want to buy up and to screw you as much as we want for as long as we want, which will be forever. And that's the deal we're offering. Surprisingly, countries don't like this. And now that there's a chance to have an, an alternative, they're doing that. And so it, it's the, the US is the one that's creating this. It's all like, oh, China, we got to compete with China. What's China doing here and China doing there? It's the US's fault, therefore, acting this way. Uh, there were people in the US who thought, like, we should develop these countries. We should allow them to develop and have control of their, their resources and, and trade with them share technology and so on. This would create a, a peaceful world and a more prosperous humanity. And they lost out in America because empire was ten, was uh, achievable to a large degree for most of this time period. We're now getting to the point that the empire is, is faltering. I think we're kind of at the Wile E. Coyote moment where he has run off the edge of a cliff and doesn't realize it. And he's just sort of standing there. Uh, but gravity is is going to kick in. Historical forces are going to come to the fore, and the U.S. empire is going to crumble, uh, barring some some unforeseen things that I don't see, uh, or a nuclear war, which is a danger because the the U.S. has an incentive to practice nuclear brinksmanship in a in a gambit to try to hold on to its empire, and that could lead to miscalculation and the end of human civilization. I think for these people running things in the U.S., they have a lot to lose because the system has made them very, very rich. But also the crimes of the U.S. and, and covering it all up is made possible by, in, in large part, by the largesse of empire. The amount, the sheer amount of wealth that is generated by the economic output and predatory practices of the U.S. empire gives them the wherewithal to cover up so many crimes and manipulate people's minds and so on. And so we're at a moment when as that as that empire crumbles, they will lose that wherewithal. And they we're already seeing it there. Why do you think we're seeing more censorship and everything else? This is all and there's more scandals that have come out that never get adjudicated, like Epstein or Russiagate or, you know, things things related to COVID and and you know them not ever like testing the vaccines for transmissibility. Uh, you know, uh, many scandals that should be scandals, but never get adjudicated. This to me is a sign that the wheels are falling off, even on the PR machine. And it's a it's it's a disaster all around for these people, but it's a hope for humanity. All right. I've taken a lot of your time. So I'll ask you one quick last question then. Maybe, I don't know, you'll think it's a pretty big question though. Um, if the US is crumbling economically, I think it's still pretty safe to say it's the dominant military power in the in the world right and so does that make war especially with china much more likely considering the us has now encircled it with what 3 400 military bases now and it can't really compete on an economic level it can only really have that dominance in the military uh, fields what do you think about that this it does present risks of, of brinkmanship or gambits. This is what happens at the end of empires. They think, well, we're going to, we've prevailed in the past and gotten through tough situations and we'll do it again. For the Brits, this happened with the Suez crisis, sort of harebrained scheme with France and Israel and, and the British to try to stop uh, and reverse Nasser's nationalization of the Suez Canal, which was a, a keystone of the 
British Empire. But so, but would the U.S. attempt something like that with China? Uh, in a sense, the U.S. is muscle bound. The military, the military is meaning that we may have all these bases and all these billions, but there's two things that the U.S. really doesn't have the ability to do. One is actually use its nuclear arsenal because it would kill everybody. I mean, it's a, this is a non-starter. It it should be recognized as such, and and decades and decades ago we should have come up with a way to live with the world in peace but people didn't want that the other area where the u.s really can't do anything anymore is fielding a military when they talk about u.s potentially entering into ukraine i mean good luck with that who are you going to find in in europe that is like i mean they've lost four hundred thousand. now they can't go nuclear over there they can't really put that many more weapons than they already have been putting into Ukraine, who in the world is going to go fight in some World War I style battle who's a Frenchman or a Belgian or a German in Ukraine? It, it's crazy. And the, U, and the U.S., I mean, people bristled and, and there was a lot of resentment and anger about the forever wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. And in Iraq, the U.S. lost, what, uh, 10,000 or less, right? I, I mean, the, I can't remember what the, the tally was. It may have been like six or 7,000 total that died in, in Iraq. And that was very unpopular. 400,000 or so have died in Ukraine, as I understand it, according to some estimates. How could you possibly expect Americans or Europeans to want to die in that way? And, and so, and, and you can't really have a nuclear war with China. They have a nuclear deterrent. I mean, it's so it, logically, it doesn't make any sense, but logic doesn't always prevail. I mean, they almost it didn't make any sense for the world to almost be ended in 1962 uh, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, but that's where leaders found themselves. So this is, uh, it, it's, the U.S. military is, it's by saying that it's muscle-bound and it really can't use its infantry and it can't use the nuclear arsenal, I guess it's a longer way, that was just a longer way of me saying that the U.S. is, kind, is a paper tiger in some ways, as Mao said famously years ago, Vietnam showed that, Ukraine has shown that, Iraq, uh, Syria, um, we are in we, we are in the paper tiger stage. And even in World War II, the, the U.S. had this industrial power, but it really lost 200,000 on each theater, so 400,000 total in winning World War II. That's, uh, the, the, the Soviets lost 26.6 million people fighting World War II. I mean, Americans have never had to fight that kind of a, of a deal with that sort of a slaughter of their own population to fight for survival. And uh, I don't think who would and who would want to, who would want to, would you, I wouldn't want to go fight on either side in Ukraine. And I think that they're not going to be able to, to do this. So the sensible thing would be for the U.S. to accept this in reverse course. I hope something very unexpected and, um, unprecedented happens in the next presidential election because electoral politics are depressing and ineffectual in U.S. politics, but the conditions are changing. The empire can't, the, the empire has prevailed all the time because it could. I don't see, I think more people are going to realize that there has to be a change and there has to be reforms. It's actually in the establishment's interest to get ahead of this rather than have the response dictated by, by catastrophe. Uh, and I hope perhaps that we will see something positive happen in 2024. I fear that there may be some kind of deep event, something that comes out of the blue, some crisis that 
is bizarre and strange and, and, you know, like a huge hack or something, something that we're never going to be able to figure out. And, but, but that leads to more centralized control. I hope they don't go for some kind of gambit like that. Uh, and I hope they don't blow up the world because, uh, I would like for future generations of humanity to exist. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess, I guess what I'd say to that is it depends who's actually got his finger on the button. I know that former Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld was always very keen to play the president in all of these war games that came out. And it was also said that in every single uh, war game that they ever played, Rumsfeld ended up nuking the entire world. So it really does uh, depend who is in the White House. I think sometimes it does uh, it is important who's actually in the Oval Office. Um, Aaron Good, thank you very much for your time. Is there anything people should know about you? Where should they follow your work? I am also on Patreon. Uh, I believe that I am too hot for the U.S. Academy. And so I have uh, set up a podcast and we have a lot of interviews with lots of people who look at the dark and suppressed aspects of U.S. politics and history. It's the American Exception podcast on Patreon. And uh, I'd be really grateful to anybody who subscribed. And I'm really happy about the content that we have there. And there's more uh, coming all the time. Yeah, everyone watching or listening to this, uh, open up your podcast app and uh, type in American Exemption. Aaron Good, thank you very much for your time today. Yeah, thank you very much, John. Great to talk to you again.